Today we will be in the book of, five of you were awake. (laughs) We are in the book of Colossians. We will be in chapter 3, and soon we will read verses 5 through 11. I really love in Scripture when you find subtle things that authors put into the Word, but they don't make totally evident. It's nice sometimes when things are totally evident and they hit you like a shovel to the face. Those are, those are great because it's helpful. You don't have to think too much about them. But I also appreciate when authors do things subtly. They're not evident on the first reading maybe or second reading, but as you read more, you begin to see that this is something the author has embedded in the text to make you understand. Before the people of Israel were to go into the promised land, Moses stood up on a mountain and he recorded the second giving of the law, but he wasn't really giving the law again, but he was providing a sermon for them. And part of that sermon was Deuteronomy is recorded there. And we are going to read the first five verses of Deuteronomy 7 to kind of set the stage for what's going to happen in Joshua and Judges for what's going to set the stage for today. There's a lot of setting up. Um, So Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 5. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the land, and before you go in and take it, I'm going to drive them out. And he has already said how wicked these people are, and Israel is then going to act as God's judgment upon them, but he makes it very, very clear in Deuteronomy, when you go into the land, no one is to live. You have to wipe them out. And in Deuteronomy, he makes it very clear why you are to wipe them out. You are to wipe them out because they carry with them false gods. And they will lead you astray. They will tear you away from me. And then my anger will be kindled against you and I will do to you what I did with them. Out of all the books in the Old Testament, Joshua happens to be one of the most positive But already, immediately at the beginning of Joshua, we have hints, just hints of trouble that are to come. Already in the first city taken, everything was to be devoted to the Lord, either for destruction or for his temple. And yet Achan keeps back some of it for himself. In Joshua chapter 9, verses 14 and 15, or in the entirety of chapter 9, we'll read 14 and 15 here in a second. Some of the other peoples who were around realize what Israel is doing and they make a ploy to come to them and pretend to be foreigners in the land, like they're just traveling through. And so in doing so, they force Joshua to make a covenant with them. They say, hey, we're just traveling through. We're not actually from here. Please be kind and merciful to us. 
And they gave them some of their provisions to show that they wanted to be kind to them. Although they lived in the land, and according to God's law, they should have been put to death. Joshua does not seek out the Lord in this, and he allows them to live. And we read this. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. They bound themselves to people that God said you must destroy. By the time you get to the book of Judges, the beginning of the book of Judges is replete with instances. Israel won a great victory. They destroyed this many people. But these folks were allowed to live. They made slaves out of these folks. This little group here got away. Some of these people were allowed to live. And by the end of the book of Judges, everything is total and complete anarchy and chaos. They allowed, they allowed those, those people to live and they eventually did exactly what God said. They led them astray to worship false gods, to have false ethics and morals among them. It is no different for us today. Paul changes the tone of this, but let's be very clear. The focus might have changed, but the words are still strong. Back in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, we read, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We are not Israel. We are not destroying people out of the land, but we are destroying things. Make no doubt. We are a galloping horde of an army and we have to destroy things. He says, but we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He says very clearly, there is a war going on. That war is not just on the outside, it is also on the inside. God told Israel that they needed to put to death everyone in the land. And Paul, in the book of Colossians, turns to the people of God and says the following, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Jew or Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, but free, but Christ is all and in all. May God bless this reading of his word. Paul says, as the Israelites were going in and they had to destroy everything, he says, now you are to look at your life and you must devote every bit of sin to death. You have to, in the words of the KJV and John Owen, mortify your sin. You have to seek it out and you have to kill it. So what must we kill? First, we must kill the sin of sensuality. I was going to say licentiousness, but if I were in your place, I wouldn't know how to spell licentiousness. So we'll go with sensuality, which might be easier. You could also just put in free sin. 
We must kill the sin of free sin. People get ruffled when we talk about the necessity of holiness in the Christian life. And I'm going to make an unedited plea to you to say that holiness is necessary in the Christian life. You have to have holiness. Now, can somebody be saved and not be holy and killed the instant after that? Yes. Did they have holiness? Not in the sense we're talking about. So yes, there are exceptions. But for those of you who have been saved and you have been progressing in the Christian life, holiness is necessary. It is a necessary entailment of the gospel. You cannot live your life in such a way that you are not putting to death what is earthly in you. This is an imperative, not it is important for you, Paul is not saying this would be good things for you to do. If you really would like to progress in the Christian life, this might be one way to do it. Now, some of you don't really need to. That's fine. But for the most of you who really want to achieve something, you should really, really struggle with your sin. He doesn't say that. This isn't an option. It's not like you're buying the super pack or something of Christianity where you get power-ups or something like that, right? But what is he saying? He's saying each and every one of you Put to death. Notice what he says back in 128. We keep coming back to this. Jesus Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This isn't for some of you and not for others. He's talking to the entirety of the church and he is telling you, put it to death. It's not optional. It's not for some and not for others. It's to everyone. Put it to death. Now, as soon as we say something like holiness is necessary for a Christian life, for Christian living, for Christians, immediately the L word gets thrown around, right? You're being legalistic. Listen, we have to very clearly define what legalism is and what it isn't. I will implore you today, legalism is not an insistence on holiness. It is not. If you want to define it that way, that's fine, but you better be prepared to burn the New Testament with fire because it's all legalistic under that definition of legalism. Paul, who is the most anti-legalistic of anybody, frankly, if you're, if you're defining legalism that way, don't go read Matthew or James because it won't sit well with you. You better stay with Paul and then you're going to have to excise basically the second half of every letter of Paul. That is not what legalism is. Legalism is saying that you have earned or merited God's favor by your deeds. But notice how Paul always, always lays this out. He lays it out this way in Colossians. He lays it out this way in Galatians. He lays it out this way in Romans. Always lays it out this way. What did he say in 3, 1, and 4? What did he say in chapter 2? How did he put it? Immediately, first of all, he's talking about who you are. All the way back in chapter 1, he says this, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In chapter 2, he says this, In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Verse 20, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Chapter 3, verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ. 
Verse 3, if you have died, if your life, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Those are not imperative statements. Those are indicative statements. That is telling you what is true. You see, what he's not saying is you have to be holy before you get to God. What he is saying is, brothers and sisters, if you have been redeemed by God, unconditionally given redemption by God, if without any holiness in your life at all, he has redeemed you and remade you in his image, my goodness, you have to walk in holiness. You have to be doing this stuff. You see, the problem is when we flip those two things. If we say that you become a person of God by doing holy things, we are then being legalistic. If we say you are God's and therefore you ought to live holy lives, we are being New Testament Christians. When you read in Joshua, the commission that is given, as we go back to use that sort of image again, the commission that's given to Joshua is, you are to have the words of Moses ringing in your ear and you cannot fall to the left or to the right. There is danger on both sides. On one side, there is legalism. There is this so overwhelming defiance of holiness, defining of holiness in your life, that before you can even be considered a Christian, you need to get right with the Lord. You need to start doing the things of God so that you can get in a place where you can even earn or merit or even be considered worthy of God bestowing his grace upon you. That is false and it's damnable. On the other side, however, there is this, Jude 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who were long ago designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They took grace, and they said, grace lets us sin. You don't need to be holy. And Jude could not be more strongly opposed to that. Notice, he says very clearly, it is a denial of the faith. He says, you need to contend for the faith. He says, this is bringing condemnation upon them. They are perverting the grace of God and they are denying our master and Lord. If you are the type of person who thinks that all you get when you are saved is a way to get out of hell and it doesn't affect you here and now, those words are for you. There must be holiness in your life. You must strive to uproot evil in your life. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the very famous preacher once said, if your, preaching of the gospels, if your preaching of the gospel of God's free grace in Jesus Christ does not provoke the charge from some of antinomianism, you're not preaching the gospel of free grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's true, and it's been overused. And I'm also going to tell you, if your preaching free grace does not include the necessary means of holiness that God has provided for you, you are not preaching the gospel. You are not Grace is not simply something that is given to you so that you might escape from hell. That is not why God has given you grace. Grace is active and it is powerful. It is given to you so that you might escape sin here and now. Not just the consequences of sin, but sin itself. It is necessary. We must kill the sin of sensuality. Secondly, we must kill the sin of idolatry. 
Paul continues in verse 5. Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. A couple of things about how the ESV words this that I would ask you to change. You don't have to actually write in your Bibles. Don't do that. But you, you can look at other translations, and they handle this much better. All of these and each of these probably have to do with sexual desire and sexual practice. So sexual immorality is any any and all sex outside of, or any sexual practice, outside of the marriage of a man and a woman, okay? So that is the usage continually and ubiquitously throughout the Bible for that term. It is always within marriage. Any impurity and passion, that passion should probably be translated as lust as it's done in the Holman and it's done in the NIV. Lust would be better. And covetousness, again, the Holman and the NIV are a little bit better because when you hear the word covetousness, you are probably thinking of the Ten Commandments and the word covet. Now, when you hear that, that makes this list almost totally random, right? It seems really random. But the fact is that each of these probably has to do with sexual sin. The last one, as the NIV and the Holman translated, is greed, which is a little bit closer. It probably has more to do with being insatiable. That there is a desire for something that you only can have fulfilled by getting more of it. The point is this. Why does Paul pick out these sexual sins? Paul probably picks out the sexual sins because they were the temptations of the Colossians at the time. He could have picked out a number of different sins, but he certainly picks out these because the Greek culture is much like our culture. Sex was one of the highest forms of enjoyment and achievement that you could get. And so for that reason, there was sexual impropriety within Greek culture. So he warns them about this. It's that that link to idolatry and that link to greed that is really terribly important. What is the point of saying that? What is idolatry? Idolatry is very simply finding greater pleasure in something rather than in God through Jesus Christ. And those little idols, those, that thinking of those as, as idolatry, that is simply a symbol of what idolatry was. When you prayed to these gods, you simply wanted fertility more than you wanted the one true and living God. You simply wanted good crops more than you wanted the one true and living God. This is not the testimony of Scripture. The testimony of Scripture is let everything else fail, but give me Christ and give me God. Paul says the desire of the Greek people, the desire of people for these sexual means is nothing more than simply being satisfied in something that isn't God. And it's that insatiable appetite because you cannot be satisfied in it happening once, but it must happen again and again and again and again. Notice that it's not enough. It's not enough to simply run away from sexual sin. Paul doesn't stop by simply saying, you guys, stop going out and doing those things. Because that would be really easy to do. But again, the New Testament witness is totally against it. Jesus talks about adultery. and says very clearly, man, you look after a woman with lust in your heart, it's done. It's done. You cannot put to death sin simply by cutting off of the flowering parts of it. You have to put sin to death by pulling it up by the roots. And Paul goes directly to the cause of it. The cause of it is this insatiable appetite within you. Now, for the Colossians, the likely outcome of that insatiable attitude was going to be sex. And for us, 
probably a lot of us, it would be the same. But for some of us, it's not. It can be an insatiable desire for anything. What do you put over Christ? What if you were told that you would have to go without for the rest of your life? Would you say, no, I couldn't, couldn't go without that? For some of you, it's family. You love your children so much that frankly, if put to it, you would deny your Lord for them. Some of you, it's food. The things that you eat are that important to you. For others, it's this, that. You have to frankly think through what these things are. Notice that each and everything that we've mentioned, they're not bad. These things are good gifts of God. Sex is a good gift from God. Food, good gift from God. Family, great gift from God. But when you make those things more important than God himself, if you are not willing to let go of all of them and have God alone, you are committing idolatry. Paul says you need to figure out what that is and you need to go down and pull it up by the roots. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As grace works through you, you are walking in good works. But notice it is God-focused and God-ordained. These are the things in which you walk. You let everything else go. Third, we must kill the sin of pride. The sin of pride. And again, I have a little bit of contention with the ESV here. In verse 8, he says, But now you must put them all away. And they say, Anger and wrath. That's a bit of a problem. They should switch those around. It should be wrath and anger. And the reason why that's important is because of a link that you miss when you put wrath second. Okay, wrath should be first. Because notice what he says in verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Right? On account of of the sins of sexual impurity, on account of idolatry, God's wrath is coming in. Idolatry is the most basic sin of all. And it's on account of these that the wrath of God is coming. And then he turns around and he says, so the wrath of God is coming, but you, Christian, you cannot be wrathful. You cannot be wrathful. Romans 12, 19 says it this way, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Why aren't you to be wrathful? Because you're not God. Wrath is God's. It is not yours. It is both an exaltation of yourself to think that you can carry out the wrath that God proposes to people. To think that you can somehow enact the wrath and the judgment of God is an exaltation of yourself. And secondly, it is a denial of faith in Christ that he will actually put things right. When you are wronged, he will make it right. As you go on through these verses, you see what he's getting at. 
anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Why? Why focus on all of this verbal stuff? Why focus on all this verbal stuff? Why, why does the Bible focus so much on speech? It seems like a really minor thing. It seems like a minor thing. You go to the book of Proverbs, man, that book is filled with talk about talking. You should talk this way. You should say these things. You shouldn't say these things. You should listen to people who say things like this. You shouldn't listen to people who say things like that. Why is it that we can't lie? And how is this connected to what I just said about wrath? It's fairly easily connected, actually. What did God do in the beginning? God created the heavens and the earth, and he stood up and he said, let there be light. But how did he do it? He spoke. He spoke. And reality was created. You know what you do when you lie? When you lie, you are forming a separate reality that you are asking people to buy into. A separate reality that you yourself has created. Someone says, Doug, you've done this. And I say, no, I, I didn't do that. If I did it and I lie about it, what am I doing? I am making a world for them in which I didn't do that thing. I am creating a separate reality that is separate from the one that God has made. I am making reality and I am proposing myself to be God by denying what is true and substituting it with what I want to be true. It is impotent. Yes, it's not actual reality, but it doesn't make it any less sinful. It's idolatry. But it's not an idolatry that's focused on outward things. It's an idolatry of pride that is focused on you. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, you are remaking reality to suit you. You are taking what it only belongs to God and thinking that you yourself can carry it out. These things should not be named among us. We must put to death or we must kill the sin of pride. And fourthly, we must kill the sin of self-identity. Self-identity. He ends by saying, you are to do this because you've put off all of the old self, the old man with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. A lot of people in our culture really, really want there to be equality. And we should stand up with them and say, amen, hallelujah, that is a good thing. It is a good thing. To desire that everyone be treated as an image of God, equal in bearing that image, is a good thing. Unmitigatedly good thing. But I'm going to turn around and say, they have really no reason to think that. Listen, when, when we talk about evolution, we typically talk about it in terms of theory. It's the theory of evolution. It is the thesis of evolution that we want to deny. And we say, it's about creation and how man has come to be. I'm going to tell you that practically speaking, evolution has far more long-range effects than simply talking about how man came to be. Ultimately, evolution undercuts not practically only, but by necessity, people, by necessity, evolution undercuts equality in human beings. 
without a doubt, bar none. And our culture will one day wake up and understand that. They don't yet because they still have enough Christian value left in them that they still think that equality can be achieved by simply saying we're all equal. But we're not all equal because we say we're equal. And if you bind evolution, it means by necessity that you think that some people are more evolved than others. Listen, there are still monkeys out there. Some of us learned how to use tools, and some of us learned how to talk, and some of us became more important than others so that we built houses, and we control fire, and we made automobiles and steam engines so that we can go kill other monkeys. The point is that there were people left behind. There were monkeys left behind. At one point in time, there were two different classes of monkeys, those who were evolving and those who weren't. And listen, if you believe in evolution, there is absolutely nothing that keeps you from thinking that there are some people who are further along that evolutionary change than there are others. By nature, there has to be. There has to be. And secondly, any evolutionist who wants to get up and say, well, really, because we're related to them, we ought to treat them as equals, that doesn't work either because the whole reason you aren't equals is because you were able to kill. Death drives the whole thing, and killing, frankly, drives the whole thing because they're out to kill you, and if you kill them first, then you get to evolve. That's how evolution works. By nature and by necessity, it makes us unequal. Those who have power are better by necessity than those who do not. We can get around this a little bit by saying, no, 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 really, there's a God up there. And we're all made in his image. But the problem is then, without revelation, without God telling us who he is, we've got to reverse engineer that thing. If you dropped an automobile engine into the lap of Isaac Newton and asked him how it worked, you know what that man would have to do? Without plans, without schematics, without a book of mechanical engineering, he would have to undo everything and figure out what's going on in it. He would reverse engineer the thing. If we have not been given the plans to who God is, if we haven't been if it hasn't been revealed to us who God is and we are told we are all made in his image, what are we going to do? We're going to reverse engineer God. And you know what he's going to look like? He's going to look like you. And he's going to look like me because we're made in his image. Well, what do we know about the image? I don't know. I look in the mirror. That's my image. And we know that there are people out there that have a marred image of God. We know that there are people out there that are bad and we say that's not what God is like. But then, again, we have to define what it is that God is like and what it is he's not like, and therefore we are simply making God in our image. The end result is this. Christianity, because it is revealed to us, and because it holds God as the creator of all mankind, can provide true equality, and specifically Christians. There can be no higher priority than simply identifying yourself with Christ. You are not white. You are not American. You are Christian. To think that your race, to think that your ethnicity, to think that your skin color, to think that your national identity makes you more important or better than other people is wrong, flat out, full stop, and it is a denial of the gospel. It isn't just bad, guys. It isn't just bad. It's not just like, kind of wrong. 
Like we know that's what some people have done back in the day, and oops, yeah, okay, we grew. Dude, it, it is evil. Notice how Paul says this. If you are better than other people simply because of how your skin looks, he says, that is a denial of Christ being all in all. More importantly, because I doubt very highly that would be tolerated, let me give one more piece of warning. If this were about sexual practices, we would go to Romans 1, and we would point out how idolatry led to sexual malpractice, and we would say to others, yes, we know that you are in a normal husband-wife relationship, and, and you guys are faithful to one another, but we would go back and we would quote to them Romans 1.32 and we would say this, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but also they give approval to those who practice them. Listen, if that's true for sexual practice, I'm telling you, it's true for racism and sexism and misogyny and the whole bit as well. yes, It is a sinful thing to practice them, but it's sinful to approve of them as well and to give approval to anyone who does. From top to bottom, it is wrong and sinful and a denial of the gospel. Your identity, what makes you worthy, is only and solely the fact that you are found in Christ. And the fact that others who are going to be damned to hell for their unrepentant sin still have an infinite amount of worth because they have been made in the image of God Almighty. Nothing makes you better. Nothing makes you worthy. It is a sin. Do not then, Christian, grow tired of putting to death the sin that is in you, it is necessary for you to maintain your walk in the gospel. There's a pastor, a famous pastor, you may or may not have heard of in Florida, by the name of Tully Tavijan. Several years ago, I stopped reading Tully, who was influential at the time. He even wrote on blogs that this church would affirm in the Gospel Coalition. And I stopped reading him when I heard him speak and I had questions about him. And then I read a blog post that he made about the Good Samaritan. I believe it was based off of a sermon that he preached on the Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke 10, there's a lawyer who comes up to Christ and says, hey, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus then asks him back. He says, well, what do you think? And he gives him the answer. And Jesus says, Uh, yeah, yeah, you've answered well. You need to love God and and love your neighbor as yourself. And then it says, the lawyer trying to justify himself says, well, who is my neighbor? So Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. Of course, there's a man going up the road and, and he is bombarded by thieves and he's beat up and he's left to die on the side of the road and all these good Jewish people pass. And of course, the dirty, evil, outsider Samaritan comes and helps. And Jesus' point is who, who then proved himself to be the neighbor, and the obvious answer is the Good Samaritan. All of that's for a sermon for another time. Jesus then, the final thing that Jesus says is, go and do likewise. And I remember in astonishment reading Tavijan's response to that, and his response was, 
you can't go and do likewise. The whole point of telling you to do that is simply to show you how much in need of grace you are. Okay, maybe. But yeah, it still says go, right? And do. That is, again, not a hint. That is not a suggestion. That is not Jesus' sort of sly way of showing you that you are incapable. That is Jesus commanding you to go and do. And at that point, once I read that, I, I stopped because any man who reads that as his hermeneutic is not healthy. Now, I'm not a prophet, and I'm not saying this to drag Tully to vision through the mud, but not too terribly long ago, it was found out that he was committing adultery. And he was rightfully dismissed from his pastorate. Now, there's all kinds of people to fault for that. The church should be faulted, and the men around him should be faulted for not stepping in when it was clear that he was heading down that path. Tully is certainly responsible for his actions. We would pray that a man of his gifting and his ability would repent and know the Lord. I do not know his status. But I know this. Men can get up and they can preach and not do what they preach. But I will bet you 10 times out of 10, they never do the things they don't preach. If they are unwilling to preach holiness from the pulpit, they are not striving for holiness in their lives. And he allowed it to sit there, and he didn't kill it. And it grew, and he didn't kill it. And it grew, and he didn't kill it. And like the Israelites, he finds his life at the end of the book of Judges, ripped apart, torn apart, his family scattered to the wind. Let that not be your lot in life. Rip up that sin. Hunt it down. We are not saying the following. We are not saying that you should simply repent when you sin. That's a given, and that's not what Paul's talking about. He literally means you go into the woods and you hunt that thing down, you shoot it and you kill it, and you hold it up as a trophy. You say, I've destroyed it. I've slaughtered it. You go and find the root of that sin and you rip it out of the ground. It isn't just about repentance. It's about not even needing it. That is not legalism. That's Christianity. That's what Paul desires for you to strive for. If you are ever going to be mature in Christ, you have to kill sin. Go hunt. Let's pray. Father God, we cannot do these things on our own. It is only because we are found in Jesus Christ, only because... His life fills ours only because he is all in all that we can do these things. It is only because of him that we have an identity that is found in something other than ourselves and our sinful flesh. It is only because of him, Father, that we know the one and true God, that we find our God neither in ourselves nor in the things of this world that we experience, that we can experience true, true understanding of the divine because he has revealed God to us and Paul has clarified him to us. Father, we don't seek to do this on our own. We don't seek to do this in our own power, but we pray, Father, as we work with all of our might that your grace would be upon us, that your spirit would move within us so that we might not only know repentance, but that we might know holiness as well. These things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ and for the good of his church. Amen.